These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. So, Greg, I'm so happy that we're here talking about this series because, you know, today on all days, it just seems like a good day for multiversal world-hopping storytelling because, of course, the great news of Kingdom Hearts 4 means that world-hopping antics are all over the place. And yes, I'm campaigning. I want Sora, Donald and Goofy to show up on Centrum. (laughs) Oh, God, no, just the idea of combining Nomura's madcap zaniness with the the far more generally serious setting of New Century, that just sounds like a train wreck. I do want to just see Sora and the gang just talking up like their various shenanigans of what they're doing that involves darkness, light, and heart, and a combination thereof, and Thomas to just hear this and respond, that sounds inane. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me, but what are you even talking about, children? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I can't do it, Thomas, boys. It's fine. Anyway, getting to the world-hopping adventure that actually makes a lick of sense, let's talk about New Century. I appreciate your high-energy madcap opening here because, obviously, we're now going to talk about Chapter 11. And this is one of those moments that we get into where the tenor of the story gets very somber. It's not quite as difficult to address as some of the weightier topics that we've handled in the past as regards racism or rape, or any of those other real-world issues. Although, Mm. the discussion of Annie's backstory here does have a component of that, which fortunately does not go too far into depth. The intriguing part about learning Annie's past, which is overdue after the many times we have followed her since Mm. the cartographer's handbook... First of all, it has to go here, since her story is the only one we have not yet learned, and all the pieces need to be set up before part one can end and the journey begins. But the story dives deeply into the actual history of Annie Oakley, or as she introduces herself, born Phoebe Ann Moses, to frame a past utterly unaffected by the alternative history of New Century. Framing Annie's character nonetheless moving into the story that is different as a result of the wind doors opening. The details of her father dying of pneumonia, the story of the first squirrel she shot, learning to sew at an infirmary, and the abusive family that she worked for, even the fact that she called them 
capital W wolves. These are all details, are matters of written history, of her own accounts of her past. Alex is therefore merely bringing life to that history and showing us the events that would make Annie into the woman she was before the Wendigo came. Because it is the true history, maybe even in spite of the fact that it is true history, this is a sobering chapter in comparison to the others. In some ways, even more than chapter two, where we learn about the tragedy that Frank had to go through before coming to where he ended up, the beginning of Steamheart, but also getting to start anew with Annie at a critical point in her life. This chapter prepares us for the more difficult moments to come as Annie's past manages to emotionally hit the hardest of these introductory chapters. It is certainly one of the best chapters of the wide array of isolated story beats and episodes that you find throughout Steamheart's many chapters. New Century is full of historical elements that connect its world to our own, but this segment is kind of as pure a narrative retelling of historical events as you could really expect in any fiction series. By Alex's own admission in the original episode addendum slash post-credit notes, something that he no longer does is in the podcast episodes, after the credits there'll be a little narrator insert that gives you a glimpse at a hidden corner of New Century. Mm. We've talked about them before, I'm not really going to bring them up again but in that addendum it mentions that this chapter was based on real events that mm. some things were altered but annie was real despite the authorial alterations that are made for the sake of tension characterization and that but there is so much of a balancing act required with the telling of such a story within this series that any such of the unintrusive alterations are more than forgivable, you know, for as whatever that's worth coming from a white cishet British man with no connection to the Oakley family or any variation of Annie Oakley's descendants. If you put too much of your own interpretation of the historical figure of note or any relevant events in your retelling, you could risk overstepping and misrepresentation but conversely if you don't put enough of yourself on the line by offering up some personal perspective and authorial statement on the events then playing it safe with distant recitation of recorded fact is you know just kind of a documentary at best or a wikipedia skim at worst and the way that this and other successful examples of historical narratives in film and media circumvent this problem is through considered writing and authorial choices of narration. Alex writes about Annie's past with a prioritization towards empathy, which enables these foundational moments of a historical figure's life to maintain their sharp immediacy. This doesn't feel like an archived set of details. This is a person's life, their past, and we feel it top to bottom. 
having Annie be our narrator rather than hearing this through some passive omniscient point of view, even a sympathetic one, prioritizes her, giving us her insight into how she felt about it. Her religious doubts, her contentment within the forest, her fury and anguish regarding the wolves, and her profound gratitude towards the gentleman Oakley. All of it is explored and voiced, and that emphasizes the human element of this piece of history. And heavens above does Loretta kill it in this chapter, essentially delivering it entirely on her own, with the most minor of additional lines provided by Alex for the conductor and the kind stranger. It's not to say that Alex doesn't sell those parts for the short time we hear them, I just mean that Loretta just does that damn well in this chapter. When I first read Toby's notes on this chapter, especially once more bringing up the topic of narrative voice, it made me think a little on how Annie's story of her past felt more than a little like Miguel's reprisal of Tiger's Eye. It's not exactly the same, since Miguel uses present tense for much of his story, and Annie is very specifically using past tense. Nonetheless, at certain key moments, it is impossible not to feel the weight of what is going on, as if we see it happening to her in real time. Lareda herself is very much putting you in the moment during some of the most difficult parts of whatever is going on, such as being thrown out into the snow or the experience of shooting the squirrel for the first time. Having said that, most of her autobiographical narrative is told at a remove, both of time and emotional distance. The wolves, for example, or her mother or her father, are not characterized, they are not given voices throughout mm. all of this. This is all from Annie's outside perspective. But it is when we suddenly come to that moment where... As you say, the tension is ratcheted up to show a pivotal moment in her life that everything is put as if it was being dramatized in a movie, as if there were actual events rather than a story that Annie is telling to us. Mm. It's specifically because there's an emphasis on the placement of each of the key characters. Mm. You can you know where the wolves are, you know where Annie is relative to them, and that sense of space is all important because at any moment, if they overlap, then the game's up. The scene is staged in the narration. It will say, this is where Annie mm -hmm. is as she's getting onto the train. Mm -hmm. This is where the wolves are. They were mm -hmm. going down the platform. And there's a key to that, which it helps you to visualize it more so than if some of those details were missing. It feels as if you could actually construct the shots. I was just sort of agreeing with your point that you mm -hmm. can almost through this see how the film would play out. But more significantly, we see in re real time the conductor asking and her interaction with the conductor as opposed mm. to some conversation that is not voiced going on between herself and either of the uh, the wolves, so to speak, during all of that mm. encounter. The significance that I put behind this is because the old man Oakley, his intercession on her 
experience, it helps to have that play out as a part of a conversation before it moves into the epilogue for this backstory here, because it helps keep us engaged and helps the audience feel something of what Annie must have felt after all of this abuse when salvation comes to her by this stranger. Mm. By not relaying the conversations with the wolves and denying them that chance of characterization, it respects the wishes of the original Annie Oakley because it's saying we are not committing these peoples <clears throat> to history in any shape or form. All emphasis is placed on the victim which frankly is just how all sharing of information should be done on a lot of this, is that we emphasise this rather than give the satisfaction of putting the perpetrators, even through notoriety, ascribing them to the record, like mm -hmm. let them be forgotten. It's a really interesting point. I hadn't really noticed until you had said that there is this fluidity between the past and present. And that's kind of how we experience these moments. We've had many conversations like this with uh, Tiger's Eye and just how the perception of time, it's not just, I am remembering yesterday, it's, it is yesterday. Like I am experiencing you know. it. I am the person that was doing mm. this yesterday. Yeah, exactly. So it's taking moments where we are kind of taking a past memory, but making it present is almost like we're saying we're not going to bring the wolves to the present and give that life, but we are going to give the moments of release from that or moments where part of who Annie has become, like the shooting of the squirrels, this moment of a knife's edge between a loss of innocence and a sense of she has to kill a creature, but also an empowerment where yeah. she becomes kind of one with the sort of natural flow of hunting and respect. She almost embodies Raoul in that moment, actually, mm. because she is appreciating and acknowledging the creature that she is killing in order to give life to her home, her family, her tribe. And I had not really sort of compared that, but my point, I keep on going on flows because this is a wonderful chapter and there's many... Uh, I swear I won't do the Shrek layers thing too often, but uh, there are many onion Shrek layers to this chapter, and God, I hate that term, but I employ it nevertheless. The main point I want to bring back to is that we kind of reinforce the moments that mean the most to us, that by kind of making them things that are in perpetuity, just ever-present in our lives, it's the moments like when Annie was able to finally get away from these people mm -hmm. and when she was able to form this foundational relationship with this man for a short time who in at least the context of this story is where she got her name. I believe at the time I read this originally I looked it up and the story of the stranger is one that shifts if like some believe that this is where she got the name from but mm -hmm. It may very well be that that's corroborated. I had, in fact, read that supposition during my time spent researching Annie Oakley's actual history. But based on what is said on the website of the Annie Oakley Foundation, 
The idea that she took her new surname from that kindly gentleman is very likely just a narratively appealing guess. She was not only a very private woman, but one of the things she did say on multiple occasions was that she regretted never learning the name of the man who saved her on the train. The point is, in this version of the fiction, it is set as fact, which means, of course, this is a moment she brings to the present. She invokes this moment every time she uses her name. It is a part of who she is. So why shouldn't it be something that can be brought to life in such a succinct way? Even when we hear about what happened later, where one of the wolves showed up and tried to bring her back, but like I forget which relative of Annie's uh, who had like found out about this essentially said, get the fuck out of here. It like, wasn't a relative, actually. It, it was, wasn't a relative. It no, was, it, was, it was a different family that was associated with the infirmary. That she That's referred right. it to. This was Samuel and Nancy Eddington, another piece of true history. It was Nancy Eddington that taught Annie to sew, and she did come to stay with the Eddingtons after escaping the abusive family, though the part where Josiah Slade, quote-unquote, came after her and she was protected by Samuel is likely a fictitious addition. The last point I'll bring up uh, that I recall is that while you were talking about Miguel and uh, Annie, it occurred to me, would they be similar ages? At, I mean, obviously, this chapter like goes over a span of numerous years, but for the sort of bulk of this, where I'm talking about her time with the wolves, would she have been a similar age to how old Miguel is? A little younger, I think. Mm. I believe she was in the 10 to 11 range when all of this was going on. Um, Whereas Miguel is a bit early teen or preteen. I can't remember. I think he mentions at the beginning of his chapter that he is 11 years old or perhaps 12. He's forgotten. So it's Mm. pretty close, honestly. Yeah. Both Alex's text and the Wikipedia confirm that Annie was sent to the Dark County Infirmary at age nine, and in the pages of Steamheart, Annie mentions years went by in regards to the Slades, so the facts in both cases seem to back up our earlier in-the-moment guesses. Because this story is not wholly focused on Annie, because Mm -hmm. it is just trying to give us a snippet of her past that I think is also part of the reason why it is told in the way it is. The importance of this chapter is not to dramatize her entire life for the audience. The importance of this chapter is thematic. Mm. That's why Alex includes it to finally give us context for some of the stuff that had only been suggested at in all of our past encounters with Annie Oakley in the last two books. The story is signaling two different things, which we've already talked about in part during Secret Rooms in Arlington. Her desire for freedom and for agency, as well as a cultivating of compassion. It would be understandable if her treatment at the hands of that horrible family made her very cynical and misanthropic. 
but the kindness of the man that helped her staves off that fate and provides, I refer to it at the time as a, as a father figure, but like he probably wasn't in her life long enough for that to happen. The nature of what he represents to her is far more symbolic in that it perhaps reminds her of what she thought her father would have been like learning at his knee at a very young age and his presence is perhaps almost totemic in that he represents the best of what she would hope to see in people especially as regards her faith which we'll talk about in a moment in the girl who learned early to provide for others through her talent we see the beginnings of the confident woman that challenged Frank in both this world and our own. But we also understand why she responded the way she did at the hands of Seth, what she has been through, and why she was tempted by his offer to turn her. Uh, you successfully encapsulated exactly what I was like planning to pick up on and propose was the main thematic connection between this chapter and the rest of Annie's journey in new centuries so far. And that's quite an accomplishment because there are multiple threads in both secret rooms and Arlington, and they don't necessarily overlap. So it's impressive here to kind of tidy and thread them all together. Mm. It, In many ways, I would say that Annie and Frank Butler they have a bit more importance, I would say, especially in Arlington, but in a lot of ways they've kind of been the Black Widow and Hawkeye of the sort of like New Century <laughs> equivalent, where it's like they're very key players and yet they haven't necessarily had a story where they have been protagonists in it, but they haven't really been the main focus. It hasn't mm -hmm. been like, this is the Annie book. This is the Butler book. Like they've been almost like the equivalent of supportive protagonists or sort of there's all sorts of agonists in terms of it of deuteragonists or something. But the point is they have not necessarily had that same amount of clarity to what their whole character is about. We've seen reflections of it from how they engage with another person's story, but it hasn't necessarily been entirely their own. The chapter that this one feels inextricably twinned with is Annie's encounter with Seth in the cave and her internal dilemma in response to what Seth offers her or forces her to confront. I, I think that's an important distinction. He doesn't force it on her. It, it almost seems as if he's about to. It's more that he forces her to confront this choice, to say, mm. like, a part of you wants this. Confront that. Well, I don't disagree with Toby's assertion here. I get the overall feeling that Annie's experience at the hands of Seth was him toying with her. It was never entirely clear to me that he respected her in the same way he came to show a small amount of respect, or at least sympathy, for Thomas. This is my own interpretation, but her surviving felt like a whim of Seth's, his offer an act of curiosity. 
We don't know entirely what he sensed in Annie, because his words didn't necessarily seem to match up with what she was actively thinking. Of course, if he was reading not her thoughts, but her instincts, then maybe he saw something in her that was an intrinsic part of her makeup without it being a conscious part of her. You know, if you played that chapter and then listened to this one straight after, they could kind of almost flow together perfectly. In fact, I would be very curious to see how a re-edited version of this Secret Rooms in Arlington, plus cartographers, can't really forget that one, which focuses strictly on the material relating to Annie, would feel. There's certainly, like, you know, a whole other book within New Century that you could call Annie or something along those lines. Like I said, you know, I would be curious to see what a prequel to Black Widow, which is just purely the parts of her story that intersect in amongst all these other things would look like. Anyway, back to the topic. Annie, despite her seemingly irrepressible sunny disposition that a surface impression deliberately leaves you with, has known immense loss and trauma. And there are times when we know that she will take all that when it's just too much and just vent and let it out when she's somewhere secure. She mentioned this in Secret Rooms when she's mm. talking with James in New Athens, I believe it's called, yeah. at that point. That yeah. was their side conversation uh, they were having mm. just before uh, the uh, the punch-up with Samson's would-be mm. allies trying to bum-rush them out of town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She has a strong handle on what life throws at her, and she has means and ways of kind of dealing with that. But that doesn't really mean that she's unshakable, like many within the story have come to assume when it, they're thinking about her. And when Seth offers that relinquishing of control and obligation to engage with the weights of life and the modern world, the forest calls to her, that place from her childhood, away from human systems and conflicts on a large and interpersonal scale. And she knows there are wolves out there. Why not subsume herself in what she loves away from what she hates? We see it's because of her family we know is waiting for her and the kindness and second chance offered to her when she needed it. And she gives that same chance to folk like Carl and Virgil. On top of that, I sort of had to read and reread this chapter as you say, because of the layers, because of all of the stuff that's going on in here, and because I needed to be properly prepared for what was going forward, something that I did not appreciate enough previously, and partly because it's part of my own proclivities, but also mm -hmm. because Alex doesn't tend to put a lot of emphasis on this, is Annie's faith. We've talked mm. about religion as it relates to Tabitha Chorley. We've also talked a little bit about Maya's interpretation of Catherine Holloway's faith and how she used that to inform on her past experience 
taking care of Weirwood, taking care of Beauregard and everything like that. But this chapter, again, takes something from the actual history, explains that Annie was raised a Quaker and the significance Mm. of how they abhor violence and yet went on to become a soldier, literally an instrument of violence. She spares life when she can, but the fact that this is how she was raised also becomes an important component of that conflict a couple chapters ago where Annie was wrestling with Thomas's final command. It's clear Mm. that her Quaker faith is still important to her, the way this Mm. chapter ends, how she cuddles back up with Frank and thanks God that he, quote-unquote, was listening to her prayer when she Mm. needed to get out of a bad situation and old man Oakley... I'm not quite sure what I'm calling him that, but he is uh, he is what characterized is, as a grandfather. So, yeah. What is that? Like the sort of old man Logan, like sort of graphic novel of new century, old man Oakley. Something like that. Only less yeah. of an asshole, I guess. Yeah. Again, old yeah. man Logan is made by. Uh, I don't want to watch the really depressing like Oakley. And it's just the really aged and like, oh, uh, that. That film would be great, but sad. <laughs> also, all wow, all of a sudden we're drawing like connotations here between like if he's old man Oakley, then that does that make Aunt <gasps> Laura Kinney? She's actually twenty three. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had not intended to Well the get voice that actress head. is Loretta. Yeah. Laura. Well, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I free you well off track. My work here is done. Okay, fair enough. Uh, again, uh, when we're talking mm. about difficult subjects, uh, injecting a little humor into it is the medicine to help the rest of it go down. Um, mm. that, back on what I was talking about, she was raised to abhor violence, but she had to have come to terms with some of that as a result of the Wendigo outbreak. It's a paradigm shift she had to factor into in terms of this is the choice that I have to make in order to protect the ones that I care about. Mm. But she doesn't drop it entirely. Because of those same values, she will always try to seek any option aside from killing. The foundation for those beliefs are laid bare here in her past, for her to grapple with in developments we've already seen and in more developments as the story progresses. And one has to consider that because violence is anathema to her true self, that must have also been a component in why it is she refused Seth. Because Mm. she knew that if she became a Wendigo, maybe on some level she would be an animal and one doesn't blame an animal for those that an animal kills. But Mm. the thing is, is that the Wendigo tend to prioritize humans above other beasts in terms of feeding. 
or at least mm. that's what it feels like for all of the storytelling so far. So it would feel mm. like even if she accepted the offer of the devil, so to speak, that she would therefore be the instrument of other people losing their lives. And that would mm-hmm. not be something that she could live with, even if it meant her own freedom. What a compelling set of characters at, at which to throw a journey at which you are probably going to have to make several moral decisions about whether or not you kill people. Mm-hmm. This is not your gang of murder hobos. Once again, we have a character in our adventure team whose feelings towards violence are not as nearly straightforward as your average unquestioning action protagonist. This isn't a Nathan Drake where the violence required in the execution of their adventures is held as a separate thing that is placed at a far firm distance from the character that we're presented with. There's not necessarily something to that that makes it a unresolvable or like a sort of it's not something that ruins a character nathan drake in the games is very much someone that people respond to in spite of and it is in spite of not because of the just the dozens and dozens of men that have died at his hands in his pursuit of the shiny thing that he's going to have to like get rid of anyway because there's some sort of curse or something uh, spoilers for all of the games. I've only played one, and yet I feel like I've probably summed up most of them. But in those stories, it does feel as if the violence is kind of something that you have to put in a box and just kind of not examine in too much detail. But here, on Through the Window, we would open many boxes, which means that we sometimes have to examine and engage with that stuff, which means that it's a bit more messy. As such, in New Century, which also opens many boxes, the violence is fully confronted as an equal presence and action with consequences inside this world that is registered by its protagonists, who will all have their own independent thoughts on them. And again, just because Annie is a bodyguard and the best marksman on the team, which makes her the point of safety for her teammates and like a likely deciding factor in any fight that they find themselves in, that doesn't mean that she doesn't have extra dimensions to her character. And as a little like addendum to that sentence, it also like doesn't necessarily mean that she will be a deciding factor in a fight. We saw this in Secret Rooms. She's a damn good shot, but in a barroom brawl, she was kind of outmatched and it was Abigail that kind of took point on that and Mm -hmm. we even saw that because the narration was from her point of view and you could see her disorientation in that moment so drawing on her real world heritage acknowledges that while Annie Oakley's sharpshooting skills make her a true marvel as an entertainer that we mustn't assume that she will be able to easily apply those skills towards combat without personal unease and It works because it's taking this historical figure and not making the assumption that just because you're coming at it with your own modern sensibilities and applying this historical figure in a new context, you can't really then make the judgment that their entire sensibilities would radically change. You sort of have to preserve certain things that are registered like their faith and their upbringing and things like that. 
I have to wonder if Annie was specifically picked by Alex long ago when he was figuring this stuff out because her original origins were as a performer that just happened to perform with guns rather Mm. than being a legendary soldier or anything like that. Frank himself Mm. was not a soldier as a part of the original conversation. In doing my own research on the history, he was, in fact, a glassblower that happened to be very good with guns as well. And it was a result of his performing that Annie Oakley came across him to begin with. And the two of them met and started developing a relationship. That's actually one of the intriguing things that I ended up learning as a result of doing this deep dive into figuring out how much of this story is real and how much of it is fiction, that the dramatization of Annie outshooting Frank by one shot, that actually happened as a part of history. The only thing that was changed was the circumstances. Here, it was because Frank was trying to train people how to shoot, but in our own world, he was doing his performance and Annie challenged him in order to, I forget if there was a specific reward that like, if anyone can outshoot me, you get this or something like that. Uh, I don't, I didn't dive too deep. No Matilda pillow necessarily. No Matilda pillow necessarily, but it could have been a way for her to buck up her own reputation by Mm. outshooting a man who supposedly would never miss a shot. This recontextualization of how Annie and Frank met keeping some of the things similar but not everything is also how Alex manages to change one of the more potentially complicated aspects yeah exactly that we would have difficulty dealing with in a modern context now there is some conflict about when this actually happened but the original history says that Annie won the contest at 15 years old and that Frank courted her and married her soon after. The implication there is that he was specifically romantically interested and therefore pursued and married someone that is a child, basically. That he courted someone that we would consider a child at this point. And Mm. I get that they had different opinions about when the not age of consent necessarily, but like the age of seniority when someone was actually considered an adult back then. But my point is, is that um, regardless of when, if this actually happened when she was 15 or if a different set of historical documents are true and uh, it actually happened like five years later, at which point she would have been 19 years old and therefore an actual adult in our eyes. Here, Alex is just like, nope, this happened at this point. She was 17 during the final months of chapter two when she gets Matilda, and then Frank waits an entire two years to when she is 19, and the two of them are formally married. That just Mm -hmm. makes that entire moment a little more palatable for us than the original history. It cleans it up a lot because, like, 
it's a it's something that's definitely best avoided. Mm-hmm. Yes, historically this was not uncommon for marriage to be conducted at younger ages, and sadly, for it to be normally much more weighted towards the woman being younger than the man would be, and who would often be a number of years older. Of course, for these social expectations, what mattered was that the man got someone who was young, healthy, and absolutely equipped for childbirth, which, yes, was just as difficult for me to type out as it was for me to read just now. But while historical accuracy is one thing, modern sensibilities is quite another. It's just not something we really want to be seeing, hearing in any way. It's like, And then our protagonist that we liked decided that 15 year old is hot it's just (laughs) no 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 thank you no please and thank you Uh, like we're frankly more than happy to have less of this part of the old world that's very easy to resolve as a writer by simply just aging the characters up just a few years more which makes an awful lot of difference to how we read these characters and their relationships i mean Two examples I can think of of just modern adaptations of books that did something along these lines is, say what you were about Game of Thrones, they made Mm. some decisions with the first season of some of the characters of, okay, we're going to make Sansa a number of years older just because, like, good God, um, we we just have to, like, do that. There's still a lot of awful shit that happens in Game of Thrones, but, like, let's give them the little bit of applause for that. And the other thing is, of course, Stephen King's It. Mm, and how yes. that bit that we shall not invoke, and you can look it up for yourself. Don't look it up for yourself, but that bit that will never be adapted by anyone. It should never be adapted. And if anyone argues that it should, keep a wide berth. Just keep a wide berth. Stephen King did a lot of drugs uh, for a number of years. We we don't hold it against him. It's fine. We just skim that part and resolve the rest of it. The point is, these things do exist in our history and in some stories from the past. And some people take the executive decision to replicate the past. Okay. For the most part, I think it's a better practice to just decide we're not going to replicate all parts of the old world, especially in a series like New Century, where we are looking at a historical moment, but we are taking liberties because we want this to be a progressive hope of what a new century could be as transposed into this time. So you say that, and then I suddenly remember that Tennessee is trying to pass a law removing the age restriction on people getting married. (laughs) Yeah. I have we learned Mm -hmm. nothing. (laughs) No. Okay. Greg, uh, I'm going to need to take a couple of minutes. Differing opinions on what ages are appropriate for people to be in a relationship is a complicated minefield sometimes especially when seen through the eyes of creators who have had a significant influence on us. Obviously, it's true that some people that are not adults in the eyes of the law can be more adult and mature 
than people three times their age. Greta Thunberg comes to mind. But given many unfortunate outcomes that come especially with sexualizing boys and girls in media, it's better to merely say that you err on the side of caution when it comes to the age of majority. When I was a kid, I read about Pyotr Rasputin and Kitty Pride of the X-Men being in a romantic relationship, when she was 13 and he was 18. Both of them technically teenagers, but it's hard not to feel that was too big an age difference. And on the other end of the spectrum, there was teenage Doug Ramsey crushing on a very adult Betsy Braddock, and her having complicated feelings back for him. Nothing ever came of it, but I remember a specific comic where another character happened upon them when Betsy was nude and Doug stripped to the waist. Their state of undress had nothing to do with anything intimate, but the character in question immediately thought differently and had no problem with it, if so. These situations were brought to life by one Chris Claremont, someone that to this day is considered one of the best comics writers out there, but he chose to frame these pairings as no big deal, and that can stick in one's craw a little in the future year of 2022, where we know better. Okay. Moving swiftly along... <laughs> Moving very swiftly along. This chapter also, on a much happier note, sets up the meeting with her sister in the following chapter, the one remaining family member that she had mentioned all the way back in Secret Rooms. There are many goodbyes in that chapter, and we'll get into them in a moment, but it's fitting that Annie gets one of her own, since the only other person that matters most to her is going with her on the trip. It's a worthy inclusion in this set of chapters that re-cements the historical origins of the character Annie, one who had a family who were important to her beyond the team and set of teammates that we have set her alongside for the purposes of New Century and Steamheart. It's a way of noting and paying respect to the whole of this person's life, not just the isolated elements that are either exciting or convenient to the story we want to tell. Hmm. I feel like that's all I have for that chapter for the moment, unless there's anything else that you want to get into before we get it, before we get into launch day, which is mm. going to balloon. Oh God, that's a weighty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, it's astonishing that we have such a wide variety of chapters in this. Like that is the mission statement of Steamheart, but this is what the episodic format of something like a book or a series can manage. It allows you breathing room and i'm just very grateful that we are able to get this annie oakley chapter not only for the reasons of this is a character in this series who hasn't had as much development or like as many of their gaps filled in as some of the others it's also just a really cool opportunity to celebrate this person i think and just acknowledge them which for as much as New Century is about acknowledging some of the uglinesses of the past and desperately hoping for a new future, I think it's really cool that we get these kernels of inspiration from the past that are really worth noting, and mm. that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. 
Unfortunately, that's it for this week. From here in our original recording, we dive right into a lot of long-winded conversations on Chapter 12 that there is no good stopping point to be found. I thought maybe I might be able to add more in editorial inserts, but there didn't end up being that much more to talk about this time around. So instead I thought, okay, maybe I can come up with a good Annie Oakley song to end on. Unfortunately, a bunch from the Annie Oakley musical felt way too hokey for New Century. I came across one really powerful song by a modern performer who even played the violin, Lindsay Sterling style. Unfortunately, her depiction of Annie felt far too violent in comparison to the Annie talked about in these pages. In my searching, though, I was reminded of another song from my past. That is not about Annie per se, but since it is about Anna Annie, I can very easily imagine Frank singing it to her as a reflection of the close of this chapter. So until next time, this is John Denver with Annie's Song. You fill up my senses Like night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain Like a storm in the desert Like a sleepy blue ocean you fill up my senses Come fill me again Come let me love you Let me give my life to you Let me drown in your laughter Let me die in your arms Come let me love you, come love me Fill up my senses